The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thank you, Katie. We have gotten to the last week of uh, our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, Just to give you kind of a view of the horizon, we're going to jump back into Mark, something we've been going through and walking through, and we'll take that on and finish it at Christmas. Um, And so that gives you kind of a taste of what's what's ahead uh, as we kind of begin a new pace uh, next week and change gears. Um, This is self-control. We've made it to the end, Uh, the one we've been waiting for and the one that's been waiting for us. And so um, we, we, uh, when you hear the word self-control, many things come to mind. And whatever it is, um, it's important to bring that into the room. And I'm not going to answer every question you have, and I'm not going to give you every tool to fix you. Uh, though it really does seem convenient and hopeful that that would happen. Uh, I think we're going to take a little uh, different road to get to where we need to go. And so with that in mind, I want to begin by pointing out uh, a 2001 Mad TV sketch uh, with Bob Newhart. And Bob Newhart plays this therapist. And he uh, it opens up and it shows this client coming in. And Bob Newhart walks out of this bathroom in his office into his desk. And they're talking, and he says, well, I'm so glad you're here. And she says, well, I've, I've only heard the best about you. And this, this woman says, um, you know, I'm here, and I'm, I really I want to I wanna get better. And Bob Newhart says, well, great. I'm so glad you're here. Just to give you a heads up, um, I charge $5 for five minutes. Everything else after that is free. And she kind of just laughs and says, it, it seems too good to be true. And, and Bob Newhart says, well, let's just, let's just figure it out. We'll, we'll, let's not put the cart before the horse. And so he says, are you ready? She says, yes, I'm ready. And so he starts his watch, and the timer's on. And she says, well, I, I have this fear. 
Uh, I had this fear that um, I'm going to be buried alive in a box. And Bob Newhart says, okay. He says, have you ever been buried alive in a box? And she says, no, no. And he said, oh, have you ever heard of someone that happened to? And she said, no, no. And Bob Newhart says, okay, well, um, here's my solution for you. And she gets real excited. She's thinking this is the silver bullet to fix me. And so she gets her notepad out and says, shall I write it down? And, and he says, no, it's just, it's just six simple letters. You can write it down if you want. She says, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready. And Bob Newhart says, okay. And he says, here it is. Stop it. Stop it. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. Stop it. She says, what? She says, stop it. Just stop. Just stop it. And, and the, the rest of the sketch is funny in its own right. But when we hear self-control and this thought of self-control and this uh, imperative that's asked of us of self-control in some way, shape, or form, something in your mind resembles that. Just stop it. And, and I'm here to point out to you this morning and point out to myself this morning that though that is a natural tendency to just look at it and say, stop it, self-control is more beautiful than that. Self-control is more beautiful than just saying, stop it to good up, to do better, just change. It's more beautiful. So before we show what self-control is, let's point out what it's not. Self-control is not legalism. It's not this prideful performance of, of obedience, of obeying enough, of being good enough. Self-control is not self-flagellance. Um, flag, uh, that's, that's one, right? Flagellance. It's not simply beating yourself up with pain to purchase peace. That's not what self-control is. Self-control is not self-awareness. Though it includes self-awareness, self-control is not self-awareness because knowledge about yourself doesn't really embark and, and produce immediate change. And also self-control is not just simply behavior modification because at some point... Uh, this exterior veneer will be rotted out by the inner chaos. What self-control is, and we'll see what self-control is, is that self-control is this apprenticing process in which we come to know the abundant life Jesus offers. Self-control is this apprenticing process that we get near Jesus and we begin to learn about what he loves and how he loves it, and how we are most full and fulfilled and safe and secure and connected to this abundant life that he offers. It's learning from Jesus what Jesus really means by the abundant life because Holy Spirit is inside of you, and we learn. One pastor put it this way. He said, true self-control it's not about bringing ourselves under our own control, but under the power of Christ. So we'll look at three things this morning with that in mind. That we ourselves are three things. That we are, uh, first, we're an embattled people. We are an embattled people. Second, we are an endowed people. We're endowed with something. And then the third, we are an eternal people. So with that in mind, as we study God's word, let's pray and ask him to bless it. Let's pray.
Lord, you are not in the game of shame nor condemnation. And so as we talk about the thing that you ask of us and ask and desire and promise to be present in our life, self-control, would you take shame and condemnation out of the room this very moment, Holy Spirit? Would you replace it with comfort? Would you replace it with conviction? That we would see ourselves clearly and soberly so that we may see you and your mercy and your grace and your pardon as something beautiful that we can revel in. Be with us this very day, Lord. Would you forgive the sins of the ones who brings your word, for they are many. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we are an embattled people. We're looking at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And what was read for us by Katie is just the zoomed out kind of context of that verse that tells us of the fruit of the Spirit. And as we zoom out and see the context, we see the context is one of tension and conflict. That we have this tension and conflict. And, and Paul is writing this book to Galatian, the Galatian church, and he's saying there's conflict. And if you have ever taken a breath, you know that there's conflict. That you know that there's this tension that you live in. That you are given a choice of what to do. That it could be what to order at a restaurant as you peruse the menu. It could be what shirt to buy. It could be uh, what... Open your computer and see the tabs. How many tabs are open? I bet there's a lot. If you look at my computer, there's a whole lot. And it just shows that, that we have this tension, this conflict of, of being spread thin and trying to figure out and choose and th- see things clearly. But we also feel a tension not just about the daily things of life, but, but at a, a more high level. The things like right and wrong and good and bad, gratifying and empty, fulfilling and disappointing life and love and, and loss. We live in tension. We live in conflict. And Paul articulates this landscape from a higher view. He's, it's as if we're playing a battleship, and he's looking at one side and looking at the other. Right? He can see both boards and how they're trying to get after each other. And he says, this conflict I'm looking at, this game of battleship between the spirit and the flesh, the spirit and the flesh, And he says, and articulates it well, and he says this in verse 16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Against, against, opposed. There's conflict, there's tension, there are rival camps opposed to one another. One of them is the the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He shows us that that's, that's one, that's the good. And then he shows us the other side, the works of the flesh. And he says in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like. Or he shows us what the other side is. Battleship, two sides, conflict, tension, 
And he says, it's obvious, it's evident. He says, the evil that wants you is obvious. And here's how that looks. Uh, no one says, I, I want to be an upright, good person, and I cannot wait to have a fit of anger today with a person who is closest to me. I can't wait to unload on them. No one says that. If you say that, and if someone says that to you, run from them. Right? No one says, I cannot wait to feel this deep burning enmity between me and this person that I love or, or even work with or know or come across or cuts me off in traffic. Right? No one says, I can't wait for enmity to grow in me. We can go down the list. It's obvious in our life that there's two options and we have to be honest that we when left on autopilot, when we are left to choose, we will choose one over the other. And I'm going to let you in on the secret. It's not the good one. We choose the bad one. That we choose the works of the flesh that he says here and also other repercussions and variants of it. We choose it, not because we want to choose bad, but because we want to choose the things that make us feel something. We choose the things that even are bad because it makes us feel something and experience something. That we love the anger because we feel justified by it. That we love uh, the superiority we feel in division. And there's us and them. That we love cutting down others because of the jealousy that we feel toward them. That we love the vulnerability that, that comes on our own terms and our own uh, flavor of sexuality and our own experience of sexuality. It, right, we, we choose bad, not because we want it, but because we want to know what it feels like. It promises us everything, and yet we know that it gives us nothing. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and in that book he is um, showing a junior devil and a senior devil write letters back to one another of how to entrap different people they're assigned to. And what the, one of the, this letters says, as a junior devil writes to a senior devil and back and forth, what one of the says is this. It says, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. That if we just keep good things and helpful things and humbling things, out of our minds and our lives, left on our own, it's pretty amusing for these devils to watch us just spin ourselves into our own web. And that's because we are an embattled people. That the good is after us and wants our heart's affections, and the bad is after us and the evil is after us because it wants our hearts and our affections because you're worth something. We're an embattled people because we're worth something. And Paul himself says, yeah, I can't even make sense of myself. I may be worth something, but I can't make sense of what I do. He says in Romans 7, what I, what I want to do, I, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do, and I can't make sense of it. And so with that in mind, as the backdrop, and we look at the exhibition matches of choosing good versus evil, it's no wonder when we see this evil and bad that promises us satisfaction and fulfillment right this very minute. 
pitted against a life of holiness that we're called to, that's hard. It's no wonder that we choose the one over the other, right? In the office, uh, the party planning committee plans this Christmas party. And Angela plans this thing called the Nutcracker Christmas at 4 p.m. And as you can guess, it is a drag. It is dry as a bone. And so uh, there's a rival committee, the committee to plan parties, headed by Pam and Karen. And, and they're setting out to make a fun Christmas party, and they call it this. They call it the Committee to Plan Parties presents to you the Margarita Karaoke Christmas Party. Is it surprising that we choose that one over the Nutcracker Christmas? No. When we choose the things that we know may hurt us, that we know don't fulfill us, it's not just the knowledge of that, it's that it gives us something. We're choosing and given these two things, and yet we choose the thing that we, we know won't fulfill us, won't, won't uh, really heal us. It's because we are an embattled people. We're an embattled people. And so it's important to note that evil, though it's been defeated on the cross, and we'll get to that, doesn't just take its ball and go home. That evil knows it's on borrowed time. And there is an expiration date on evil. And because of that, it fights all the harder for the battleground to take it. And the battleground is you and I. That we're worth something. And because of that, we are an embattled people. So where is the battle in your life? We're talking about self-control. Where in which do you need a, the place in your life do you need more self-control? And I'm not going to say stop it. I'm not going to say good up or change. I'm asking that question. And I think to answer that question, you can look at the other attributes in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not just a little bit of this and a dash of that. It's all one thing. It's not the fruits it's the fruit that when Holy Spirit gets involved in your life, these things will be present at different speeds and seasons. But, but this will be, all these things will become a reality. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things will become a reality. And so for self-control to become more of a reality, maybe you need to look and find the battleground in your life where love is not but hatred is. Maybe you need to find where joy is not, but where there's deep-seated bitterness. There's not peace, but there's chaos. There's not patience, but there's agitation. There's not kindness, but there's belittling. There's not goodness, but there's selfishness. There's not faithfulness, but there's flakiness. There's not gentleness, but there's being a sense of overbearing. When we look at the places where other attributes in the fruit of the Spirit aren't, there we're able to recognize where the battle really is making itself most known and where self-control can become introduced. We're an embattled people. Uh, but also we are an endowed people. We are an endowed people. We're living between these, the conflict between these two contrary camps, the flesh, the spirit. Paul tells us that. But we are an endowed people. When I was in high school and college, I worked uh, for a landscaping company, and we cut a lot of yards all the time in, in a week. And so we would um, go around town in Nashville and cut yards, and we'd cut some normal yards and then some famous people's yards. 
And so we once uh, spent, we, on Tuesdays, we went every, every Tuesday to Ricky Skaggs' house. He's one of the greatest people to touch a mandolin. And so he has this big property north of Nashville, and we went up there, and all of a sudden we, we stop uh, when we get there, park the truck, and my boss realizes that he's forgotten something or something's broken. So he drops me off with a, a zero-turn uh, mower and a weed eater and a blower, and he says, um, hey, I got to fix this. I'll be back in a few hours. Just figure it out. And then he waves as he pulls out the driveway. And sometimes when we live a life of holiness and we look at self-control, that's what it feels like. That we've been left, that we're dropped off with, yeah, some stuff that we have and can do stuff with, some tools in the tool belt. But Jesus all of a sudden is like, hey, see ya. You just figure it out. And you're left on your own to piece it all together. And what's important to note is, yes, as we live embattled, we are valuable and there's things wanting and vying for our attention, but, but, but also uh, we're not left alone. That we don't have to scrap everything in the scorched earth and just totally tear everything down. But we are an endowed people with desire. We're an endowed people with desire. We have a desire. You want something. You want something. And the problem is not that you want something. The problem is that you settle for something. It's not that you want something. It's that you settle for something so far less. And the problem with me is that I settle for something so far less. And C.S. Lewis articulates this. He says it this way. He says, it would, be, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around uh, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. The problem with our desires is not that we have them. The problem is that we're far too easily pleased. Now, in this section of Galatians 5 that was read for us, it says uh, the desires of the flesh, and, and it's in the negative light, and it is negative. There are, there are desires that the flesh want of you, and they are bad. At the very same time, God is involving himself with you and putting his Holy Spirit in you and making the fruit of the Spirit evident in you, not because you are desireless, but to fulfill the desires that you are endowed with and that you have. And as we follow Jesus in this journey of self-control, it's not about scrapping desires that you have and calling them all bad and throwing the baby out with the bathwater and going scorched earth. Following Jesus with, in a journey of self-control is about learning how to um, properly put your umbilical cord into his economy and learning how he does fulfill it. And he's not ignorant to the desires that you have, but actually he knows it because he gave them to you. And we learn to take those desires that we have in us on God's terms, not our own. And we experience the abundant life, and we begin to experience the abundant life there. In Psalm 37, it says this. It says, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That we begin to, in, in the journey of self-control, have our hearts and our desires tuned to the tuning fork of God's heart for us. We begin to get the desires of our heart. 
that we follow Jesus as he's the tuning fork and we're fulfilled and we're purified. Our desires aren't eliminated nor they're diluted, but we know that we're meant for something and it's beauty. Every day in creation in Genesis 1, we hear God say and give a commentary about what he's done and he says, it's good. Over and over again, it's good, it's good, it's good. We were made for beauty. The world around us is made for beauty. There's a famous psychologist that, um, named Kurt Thompson, and he wrote a book called The Soul of Desire. If you don't have it, get it. If you, don't, if you read it and don't like it, Venmo me. I'll, I'll give you a refund. But he talks about kind of this intersection between spiritual formation and psychology. And as he explores that intersection, he says this. He says, we think we must avoid desire at all costs in order to keep away from the pitfalls of sin and the shame that accompanies it. But, paradoxically, it is in naming our desire for beauty that we align ourselves with the most primal call of God, which is being broadcast from the heights of heaven and is implanted in the core of our souls. All of creation and all of creatures have desires implanted so deeply in them for beauty. That you were made for something. Yes, you, evil is after you and it's reading your mail and it's having your number and you're embattled. But guess what? That's because you are endowed with such a desire. And evil wants you to short circuit it and, and take the path of least resistance. And we do it so often. And yet we're endowed with such a desire and self-control doesn't look at that desire and say, stop it, throw it out. Self-control looks at that desire and says, you've been endowed with something worth stewarding. That God has planted something deep in you worth stewarding. And so my question for you this morning, as you are an endowed individual with something from the creator, my question is, what do you want? Not what's on your wish list or what's a dream of yours or a fantasy of, yeah, I, I would want this. This is nice. That'd, that'd be pretty good. Right? Not an American wish list of, or a social keeping up with the Jones wish list. I mean, what do you really want? What is your, what's the void in your soul attesting to? And it may be something real deep, like just the words from a parent that you never heard that you long to know affirming words, that you're enough, that you got what it takes. Maybe it's, maybe you want to find fulfillment in your work, because work is a good thing, it is. It was there before the fall. It's a good thing. And, but right now it just feels like you're clocking in. Um, you've got the working man blues, like Merle Haggard said. Uh, you want to know, you want something good and meaningful enough weight. That maybe you want really real and meaningful friendships and connection to other people, that you're longing for that. And that's a good thing, and you want that. And guess what, God wants it for you too. Maybe you want a really vulnerable and fulfilling and fun and filled with laughter marriage, and you don't have it. And guess what, it's worth wanting and desiring. We are a people endowed with desires. And guess what? The bad guy didn't put him in there. The good guy did. And he wants you to know 
fulfillment of those very things. Sin wants you, and it wants you to short-circuit and find the path of least resistance, but, but God's here to offer this thing called self-control, not to make you feel like a puppet and a puppeteer controlling every move you make and just to do better, but he's saying you've been given something worth stewarding because you're valuable. Come to me. Find fulfillment in me with that in mind. I know that you have it because I gave it to you. Or an embattled people, or an endowed people with desire. But lastly, we're an eternal people. We're an eternal people. And self-control gives us an appetite for eternity. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, he has this pretty, very sober, if we want to put it a good way, but pretty depressing, actually, view of life. He's just honest. He's writing and just talking about all these honest things about life. And he says in, in verse or chapter 3, he says how God has put eternity into the heart of man, that we live with eternity in scope, and yet like a C.S. Lewis idea that we just settle for too less, for far less than what we're meant for, that we are meant and built in, for eternity. And every person is meant to experience God both now and in full then. And Paul has the long view, that view in mind, that we're built for eternity. And he has a long view in mind, and he tells us what that long view looks like, particularly when it comes to living life in the Spirit, having the Spirit in us. And he says this in verse 24. He says, For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's saying, if you belong to Jesus, the things that are vying for your attention, the sin, the desires, the, the bad stuff, the thing that is stealing peace from your conscience, that, that stuff. Paul is saying, it's been dealt with. It's been dealt with. The verdict is in on it. It's on borrowed time. It's, it's the expiration date we talked about. Christ has crucified it, killed it. Now the problem is you hear that theological truth and then you look at your own life and the sins and struggles that mark it and you're like, well, it's awfully good to know. Wish that would come my way sometime. And Paul knows that. So, and he reminds us in the very next verse after that, in verse 25, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Because this sin has been crucified, let's know what that crucified sin looks and feels like. And he says, keep in step with the Spirit. All because of the cross, we are now have this pace car set in which we come to know what the fruit of the Spirit look like. And we're not the ones setting the speed to it. But the one who lives in us and that God has given us, Holy Spirit, begins to make it well known. So with that in mind, what does keeping in step with the Spirit look like as we move on in life and along with eternity in mind? And there's a few things. With the crucifixion in mind, with eternity in mind, as we hold this intention, as sin has been dealt with, you can expect to change. And you should expect to change. That the God of all things has put a spirit inside of you 
Therefore, an old dog can learn new tricks. You are not resigned to the, to the way you are now. You will change. And so it's important to turn that volume up, that knob up, because it speaks to you the truth of God has not forgotten about you, and God also knows exactly how you are now, and he will do something. He's committed to you. He's put a spirit in you. It's a deposit. You will expect to change, and also you are involved in this. That this self-control, this journey of self-control toward the abundant life involves you. That, that you're in it. You have skin in the game. You're not the sole one that performs all the things, but you are in there. And it's important to have the, the thought of being involved in self-control because it reminds you that you are made for holiness, that you are made for wholeness, for fulfillment, for joy, for peace, for the fruit of the Spirit, that you're made for those things. We're made for those things. And there's this thing the Puritans called the mortification of the flesh. It's a very spiritual word. But what the mortification of the flesh is, is it says it looks at sin and it begins to say, you know what, you want me? And, and actually, part of me really wants you. But I know what you are and I know what you're after. I know you're the, you're the, you're the path of least resistance and, and the short circuit. And I'm going to recognize these patterns in my life that I want to change. And I'm going to look at it and look at what Jesus has done for me and then look at this and all of a sudden now be able to feel this exhibition match of the party planning committee versus the, the party the plan committee party planning. <laughs> but you can look at that. And mortification says, actually, you can weaken the thing that vies for your attention that will drag you away to death. It does change, and it does involve us. But there's other things that we can note in the ramifications of the fact that we live with eternity in mind, that we will change, and the Holy Spirit's in us. And that we should explore inwardly with self-control. That our self-control actually asks us to explore the inner life. It could be the trauma you felt. It could be the way in which you uh, just naturally think the naturally feel, the way you naturally want your desires met, explore inside of you. It can be a scary place. Self-control says, look inside of you. And also, don't go there alone. Because self-control says, be connected outwardly. Air, air your laundry. Like, put everything on the table with others around you that you know, that you trust, that are, you know are committed to your wholeness and holiness. Each Tuesday night, I meet up with a group of four or five friends, best friends, and, and we talk, and we put everything on the table. You need others to be outwardly connected. And also this dance of, of self-control uh, asks us to do something like this, that, that we should be patient. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you look at a tree when it grows and you stare at it and you say, I see it growing, um, you're a liar. <laughs> because we just don't see change fast. In the, in the world of horticulture, we just don't see things grow fast. Sometimes it does grow more apparent in seasons. 
And sometimes it, feel, it feels extremely dormant in seasons. But with the fruit of the Spirit in mind, with horticulture in mind, be patient with yourself. Self-control isn't saying, oh, I messed up and I really I just can't get over this. It's saying, be patient with yourself. Change will happen. Holy Spirit's in you, and it happens at a pace. Sometimes rapid in season, sometimes slow in others. And also, self-control asks us, as we're being patient with our growth and, and our journey towards wholeness, self-control asks us to narrate our sins. Talk to your sin. Because sin is sure is talking to you, and sure is talking to me. And, and pick it apart. Be the bully to your sin. And say to it, I know you, and I've experienced you before, and I'll tell you one thing, you didn't leave me the way you promised. You, get, you promised to give me everything, and you gave me nothing. Pick apart and narrate and talk to your sin, because self-control wants you to pick it apart and name it. One of the last things that self-control asks us as we live with eternity in mind is that it asks us uh, to be comforted. Again, the big word called vivification, Puritans used. And what this word is, is that when you sin, and you will sin, and I will sin, and when we come across the things that entangle us and ensnare us, that we can look at these things, and as we grow in grace, and really experience the full abundant life, and tastes of it, and grow in it, Vivification is this, that we look at the mercy of God and revel in it because it never gets old. It actually gets more amplified. For the one look we, we see at our sin, we have to take 50 looks at Jesus because it never gets old and it begins to own the story more and more. The story of your sin does not need to be owned by sin. It's been crucified and paid for. And God is committed to let you and make sure you know that. And I'll end here. There's a church, uh, person in church history named Augustine. And Augustine uh, had many years growing up where he lived the way he wanted to. And that looked uh, like it did in many different ways. And um, one way was uh, through sexual promiscuity. And he really experienced Jesus and became captivated by him. That's what makes his writings really powerful to this day, hundreds of years later. later. And he became captivated by Jesus. And he writes and tells a story that, that at one point he was walking down the street and he saw an old flame. He saw someone that he had been with many years ago. And this old flame said to him, Augustine, it's I, it is me saying to him, Augustine, hey, let's rekindle this. Let's, you know, for old time's sake. And what Augustine says, his response was to the, it is I, Augustine, it's me. He says, yes, but it's no longer I. When your heart becomes so captivated by a, by a more beautiful love, you will change. And you will learn, yes, how you're built, and yes, how you, a pattern you've set in your life. But you'll be able to look at the things that once ensnared you and, and, and sought after you and vied for your attention and affection and say to it, 
because Holy Spirit is in me, because the God of all things is committed to make sure the desires he put in me are fulfilled, it's no longer I. Let's pray. Lord, as we prayed earlier, uh, take shame out of the room because that's not from you. Lord, as you promise in your word, as we trust in you, would you take condemnation out of the room? That's not your game. But this very day, by your Holy Spirit only, would we feel the nudge toward a life of wholeness because that's what you built us for. Yes, to be holy because you're holy and we belong to you, but but also to, to experience the abundant life because that's what you promised. For those of us this day, Lord, who are beating ourselves up, shower them with grace. And Lord, for those of us that, that really need courage in light of self-control, we beg for it. May we walk in a way that we live a life soberly because we really do long to know what it looks like to have a holiday at sea rather than simply playing in the mud pies and the slums. Help us not settle for so less. We pray, King Jesus, in your name. Amen. Because we really do long to know what it looks like to have a holiday at sea rather than simply playing in the mud pies and the slums. Help us not settle for so less. We pray, King Jesus, in your name.